You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Season 2 of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you find something interesting. Or maybe something spooky. Or maybe something just... Mysterious. Hello folks, this is Terry from Texas with a new episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. I'm sorry about taking off last week, but my allergies and the heat were just killing me, so here I am, back again, all well, or at least staying cool. So here's tonight's show. When people pass away, it offers the family closure in a sense that, yes, their loved one has passed and they have the proof right here. They see the body or they have a closed casket funeral, but they know that their loved one is inside that case, or they know the body of their loved one is. But when somebody simply disappears, there is no closure for the family, even if the missing person is legally declared dead. There is no body to bury. There is no time to mourn properly. The family is left to pine and question about their family member, and that is all. I want to touch on some famous disappearances, and I want to really give information on those disappearances which are truly that. Not so much the ones where the person who is missing is found, although there is one, or worst case, their body is found. Let's get started. One of the most famous of all disappearances or reappearances is that of the famous English authoress Agatha Christie. Dame Agatha Mary Clarissa Christie, Lady Malawan, DBE, was born 15th of September, 1890, and passed away January 12th of 1976. She was an English writer, of course, and she's known for her 66 detective novels and 14 short story collections, including her famous Belgian detective Hercule Poirot, famous for saying, I am not French, I am Belgian, and Miss Marple. Christie also wrote the world's longest-running play, a murder mystery called The Mousetrap, and six romances under the name of Mary Westmacott. In 1971, she was appointed a Dane commander of the Order of the British Empire, or DBE, 
for her contribution to literature. Her husband's name was Archie. The family name was Christie, but he was Lord Malawan. She was Lady Malawan. And in late 1926, Archie asked Agatha for a divorce. See, he was in love with another woman named Nancy Neal. He wanted to leave Agatha and marry Nancy. On December 23, 1926, the Christies quarreled, and Archie left their house, Stiles, in Sunningdale, Berkshire, to spend the weekend with his mistress at Godalming in Surrey. That same evening, about 9.45, Agatha Christie disappeared from her home, leaving behind a letter for her secretary, saying that she was going to Yorkshire. Her car was later found at Newlands Corner, perched above a chalk quarry, with an expired driving license and clothes. Her disappearance caused an outcry from the public. The Home Secretary, Mr. William Joynson Hicks, pressured police and a newspaper offered a 100 pound reward. Over a thousand police officers, 15,000 volunteers and several aeroplanes scoured the rural landscape. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle even gave a spirit medium one of Christie's gloves to find the missing woman. Well as you can figure, being a world famous authoress, Agatha Christie's disappearance was featured on the front page of the New York Times. She was not found for 10 days despite all the volunteers and all the searching that was done. But on December 14, 1926, she was found at the Swan Hydropathic Hotel, which is later turned into the Old Swan Hotel, in Harrogate, Yorkshire, registered as a Mrs. Teresa Neal, which oddly enough is the last name of the husband's girlfriend from Cape Town, South Africa. Christie's autobiography makes no reference to her disappearance. There were two doctors that examined her and suggested she was suffering from amnesia. However, opinion remains divided as to why she disappeared. She was known to be in a depressed state from literary overwork, her mother's death earlier that year, and her husband's infidelity. Public reaction at the time was largely negative, supposing that this was simply a publicity stunt, or an attempt to frame her husband for her murder. There was a 1979 film directed by Michael Apted called Agatha, and it features a disclaimer in the opening credits stating that what follows is an imaginary solution to an authentic mystery. The film starred Vanessa Redgrave as Agatha and Timothy Dalton as Archie, and depicts Christie planning suicide in such a way as to frame her husband's mistress for her murder. An American reporter, played by Dustin Hoffman, followed her closely and stops the plan. Christie's heirs unsuccessfully sued to prevent the film's distribution. An author named Jared Cade interviewed numerous witnesses and relatives for his sympathetic biography, Agatha Christie and the Eleven Missing Days, which was revised in 2011. He provided a lot of evidence to suggest that she planned the event to embarrass her husband, never anticipating the resulting escalated melodrama. The Christies divorced in 1928 and Archie married Nancy Neal. Agatha retained custody of daughter Rosalind and the Christie name for her writing. During their marriage, she published six novels, a collection of short stories, 
and a number of short stories in magazines. And Agatha passed away January 12, 1976. And there was really no reason why she did what she did. So there's one mystery from the Queen of Mysteries. As you can figure, our next mystery, Mysterious Disappearance, is going to be Amelia Earhart. Amelia Mary Earhart was born July 24, 1897, and she disappeared July 2, 1937. She was an American aviation pioneer, of course, and she was an author. She was the first female aviator to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. She received the United States Distinguished Flying Cross for this accomplishment. She set many other records, wrote best-selling books about her flying experiences, and was instrumental in the formation of the 99s, an organization for female pilots. In 1935, Earhart became a visiting faculty member at Purdue University as an advisor to aeronautical engineering and as a career counselor to women students. She was also a member of the National Women's Party and an early supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment. Nothing wrong with that. During an attempt to make a circumnavigational flight of the globe in 1937 in a Purdue University-funded Lockheed Model 10E Electra, Earhart navigator Fred Noonan disappeared over the Central Pacific near Howland Island. Fascination with her life, career, and disappearance continues to this day. There are many theories as to what happened to Earhart and Noonan, and many of them include thoughts that Earhart wasn't, for all of her abilities, ready to try this around-the-world flight. There have been ideas put forward that Fred Noonan had been heavily drinking during the flight and Earhart was having trouble dealing with him. Other theories posit that Earhart was on a spy mission for the U.S. government, a mission that she would undertake to get a view as to what the Japanese were doing in the South Pacific at the time. It has been suggested that Earhart landed on any of a number of islands in the vicinity of Howland Island that the plane crashed into the ocean, thus the bodies being lost, even that the pair had survived the downing of the plane only to end up in Japanese custody and then were executed by them. Suffice it to say that so many theories and ideas have been put forth regarding the disappearance of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan that it boggles the mind as to the could-haves and the maybe-wases of the situation including this idea. In November 2006, the National Geographic Channel aired episode two of the Undiscovered History series about a claim that Earhart survived the world flight, moved to New Jersey, changed her name, remarried, and became Irene Craigmile Bolum. This claim had originally been raised in the book Amelia Earhart Lives in 1970, by author Joe Kloss, K-L-A-A-S, based on the research of Major Joseph Gervais. Irene Bolum, who had been a banker in New York during the 1940s, denied being Earhart and went so far as to file a lawsuit requesting $1.5 million in damages and submitted a lengthy affidavit in which she rebutted the claims. 
The book's publisher, McGraw-Hill, withdrew the book from the market shortly after it was released, and court records indicate that the company reached an out-of-court settlement with her. Subsequently, Bolam's personal life history was thoroughly documented by researchers, eliminating any possibility that she was Earhart. A professional criminal forensic expert hired by National Geographic studied photographs of both women and cited many measurable facial differences between Earhart and Bolam. This is one mystery that will probably never be solved. Our next gone missing is Ambrose Bierce. You may know that name from a story called An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is set in the American Civil War, which he partook of. And it's, it's one of the strangest but interesting short stories, films, that I've ever read or seen. Ambrose Gwinnett Bierce, born July 24, 1842, died around 1914. He was an American short story writer, a journalist, a poet, and a Civil War veteran. His writings are considered masterpieces of American literature. His influences over other authors have been demonstrated over and over. Beers was born in a log cabin at Horse Cave Creek in Meigs County, Ohio, on June 24, 1842, to Marcus Aurelius Beers, and his mother's name was Laura Sherwood Beers. He was of entirely English ancestry. All of his forebearers came to North America between 1620 and 1640 as part of the Great Puritan Migration. He often wrote critically of both Puritan values and people who made a fuss about genealogy. He was the tenth of thirteen children, all of whom were given names by their father, beginning with the letter A. In order of birth, the Beer siblings were Abigail, Amelia, Anne, Addison, Aurelius, Augustus, Almeida, Andrew, Albert, and Ambrose. His mother was a descendant of William Bradford, who was a governor of the original Plymouth colony. His parents were a poor but literary couple, and they instilled in him a deep love for books and writing. Beers grew up in Coscusio County, and he attended high school at the county seat of Warsaw. He left home at 15 to become a printer's devil at a small abolitionist Ohio newspaper, the Northern Indianan. At the outset of the American Civil War, Beers enlisted in the Union Army's 9th Indiana Infantry. He participated in the operations in Western Virginia. He was present at the Battle of Philippi, which was the first organized land action of the war, and received newspaper attention for his daring rescue under fire of a gravely wounded comrade at the Battle of Rich Mountain. In February of 1862, he was commissioned a first lieutenant and served on the staff of General William Babcock Hazen as a topographical engineer, making maps of likely battlefields. Beers fought at the Battle of Shiloh, April 1862, a terrifying experience that became a source for several short stories in the memoir, What I Saw of Shiloh. As a staff officer, Beers became known to leading generals such as George H. Thomas and Oliver O. Howard, both of whom supported his application for admission to West Point in May of 1864. General Hazen believed Bierce would graduate from the military academy, quote, with distinction, unquote. 
and William T. Sherman also endorsed the application for admission, even though he stated he had no personal acquaintance with Bierce. In June of 1864, Bierce sustained a serious head wound at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain, Georgia, and spent the rest of the summer on furlough, returning to active duty in September. He was discharged from the Army in January of 1865. However, he went back into the Army in mid-1866 when he joined General Hazen as part of an expedition to check out military outposts across the Great Plains. The expedition traveled by horseback and wagon from Omaha, Nebraska, and arriving toward year's end in San Francisco, California. While in San Francisco, and still attached to the Army, Ambrose Bierce received a promotion to Brevet Major. After he was separated from the Army, Bierce remained in San Francisco for quite a number of years, writing for various papers. He moved to England for a time, but came back to San Francisco, where he became one of the foremost writers and journalists of his day, working for William Randolph Hearst at one time. In October of 1913, Bierce, then age 71, departed from Washington, D.C. on a tour of his old Civil War battlefields. By December, he had passed through Louisiana and Texas, crossing by way of El Paso into Mexico, which was in the throes of revolution. In Ciudad Juarez, he joined Pancho Villa's army as an observer, although he had been critical of Pancho Villa prior to going to Mexico. And in that role, he witnessed the Battle of Tierra Blanca, it was during this time in Mexico that Bierce disappeared. Rumors floated around that he had been killed during the Mexican Revolution or that he may have died by his own hand. Personally, reading about Bierce, my thoughts are that since Bierce was an old man and I don't know how active he was, they said he had stopped writing shortly before this. He was an old man, a very serious asthmatic, and he was in a place and a situation he shouldn't have been in. While his being killed by firing squad is believable, the thought that he killed himself is also viable. It is also possible that Bierce, as an old man, just passed away due to his age and health. Again, this is one we shall never answer, but his writings live on, such as the one I mentioned earlier, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. The last little missing individual we want to look at is Virginia Dare. Actually, Virginia Dare was only one of a bunch of people that went missing at the same time. Never to be seen again, never to be heard of again. Only suppositions and could-bes were mentioned after this. But Virginia Dare was the first English child born in a New World English overseas possession. And it was when she was named after the territory of Virginia, her birthplace. She was born August 18th of 1587, and her date of passing is unknown. Her parents were Ananias Dare and Eleanor White, commonly spelled E-L-E-A-N-O-R, but sometimes E-L-L-I-N-O-R or E-L-Y-O-N-O-R. Virginia Dare was born in the Roanoke Colony in what is now North Carolina in August of 1587, the first child of English parents born in the New World. Eleonora, daughter to the governor of the city and wife to Ananias Dare, one of the assistants, was delivered of a daughter in Roanoke 
it was written. Little is known of the lives of either of her parents. Her mother Eleanor was born in London about 1563 and was the daughter of John White, the governor of the ill-fated Roanoke colony. Eleanor married Ananias Dare, born 1560, who was a London tiler and bricklayer at a church on Fleet Street in the city of London. He too was part of the Roanoke expedition. Virginia Dare was one of two infants born to the colonists in 1587 and the only female child born to the settlers. Well, you got a 50-50 chance there. Got two kids born, one of them's going to be a boy, one of them's going to be a girl, or both are going to be girls or both are going to be boys. So, eh. Nothing else is known of Virginia Dare's life as the Roanoke colony did not endure as we all well know. Virginia's grandfather, John White, sailed for England for fresh supplies at the end of 1587, having established his colony. He was unable to return to Roanoke until August 18th of 1590, three years later, due to England's war with Spain and the pressing need for ships to defend against the Spanish Armada, by which time he found that the settlement had been long deserted. The buildings had collapsed and the houses were, quote, taken down. Worse, White was unable to find any trace of his daughter or granddaughter, or indeed any of the 80 men, 17 women, and 11 children who made up the lost colony. What became of Virginia and the other colonists remains a mystery. The fact of her birth is known because John White, Virginia's grandfather and the governor of the colony, returned to England and told people that she had been born. But then again, like I said, three years later he returned and the colonists were gone. Nothing is known about the, for certain about the fate of Virginia Dare or her fellow colonists. Governor White found no sign of a struggle or battle. The only clue to the colonists' fate was the word Croatoan carved into a post on the fort and the letters C-R-O carved into a nearby tree. All of the houses and fortifications had been dismantled, suggesting that their departure had not been hurried. Before he let, had left the colony, White had instructed them that if anything happened to them, they should carve a Maltese cross on a tree nearby, indicating that their disappearance had been forced. There was no cross, and White took this to mean that they had moved to Croatoan Island, now known as Hatteras Island, but he was unable to conduct a search. As expected, there are a number of theories regarding the fate of the colonists, the most widely accepted one being that they sought shelter with local Indian tribes and either intermarried with them or were killed by the local natives. In 1607, John Smith, the famous John Smith of the Pocahontas story, and other members of the successful Jamestown colony sought information about the fate of the Roanoke colonists. One report indicated that the survivors had taken refuge with friendly Chesapeake Indians, but Chief Powhatan claimed that his tribe had attacked the group and killed most of the colonists. Powhatan showed Smith certain artifacts that he said had belonged to the colonists, including a musket barrel and a brass mortar and pestle. However, no archaeological evidence exists to support the claim, and the Jamestown colony received reports of some survivors of the lost colony sending out search parties, but none were ever successful. Eventually, they just said they were all dead. William Strachey, 
a secretary of the Jamestown colony, wrote in the history of travel into Virginia, Britannia in 1612, that there were reportedly two-story houses with stone walls at the Indian settlements of Pecoricanic and Ochinahoan. The Indians supposedly learned how to build them from the Roanoke settlers. There were also reported sightings of European captives at various Indian settlements during the same time period. Strachey also wrote that four Englishmen, two boys, and one maid had been sighted at the Eno settlement of Ritanoc under the protection of a chief called Ayanoko. The captives were forced to beat copper. The captives, he reported, had escaped the attack on the other colonists and fled up the Choanoke River, the present-day Chowan River in Bertie County, North Carolina. During the past 400 years, Virginia Dare has become a prominent figure in American myth and folklore, symbolizing different things to different groups of people. She has been featured as a main character in books, poems, songs, comic books, television programs, and films. Her name has been used to sell different types of goods, from vanilla products to soft drinks, as well as wine and spirits. Many places in North Carolina and elsewhere in the southern United States have been named in her honor. Like I said, if you, find, if you have a, a loved one that passes away in your presence, it may be easier to mourn their loss, their passing, than it would be if that person disappears. Because number one, you don't know why they disappeared. You don't know how they disappeared. You don't know where they went. And it's rather scary to know that someone may be out there expecting you to come find them when you don't have any information on where they are. So... What do you do? I understand that disappearances happen all the time. We see it on the news all the time. But I'm hoping that people who do disappear will somehow have a better life wherever they get to. Well, that's all I have for this week. I want to thank you again for listening to Terry's Mysterious Moments. And I hope you listen again. Let me know if you like the show. You might want to tell me where you're listening from. I like to hear where everybody is from. Also, remember on Mondays to listen to the Real Paranormal Activity podcasts with Aaron Hunter as he reads listeners' stories and sometimes we'll have interviews with people. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail hosts a show called Aaron's Horror Show, but I understand he is on a small hiatus at the moment. But when he comes back, please be sure to give him a listen course me on Wednesdays with Terry's Mysterious Moments and on some Thursdays the Sandman Lullaby with Patrick Sean Jones. That's all of us on the RPA Network. We're glad to be here to, to give you something to listen to. Anyway I hope you folks have a great week. It's good to be back and we'll talk to you later okay. Okay.